Welcome to Rethink, a podcast focused on the future of skilled nursing. I'm Sahida Siddiqui, editor of Skilled Nursing News. I'm joined for this episode by Leslie Cunningham-Campbell, COO of Touchstone Communities, which operates nearly 30 communities across Texas. Prior to joining Touchstone, Leslie served for seven years as Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of DiversaCare. She also spent close to 20 years with Beverly Enterprises slash Golden Living in a variety of positions. Before we get to that conversation, I'd like to highlight the Continuum Conference taking place December 7th in Washington, D.C. Aging Media Network is bringing all of its publications together for this special event, inviting our readers from across senior care and healthcare to learn the trends and strategies reshaping how care is delivered to older and complex populations as silos are being broken and integration is more critical than ever. Visit skillnursingnews.com forward slash events to learn more. Another quick note, we recorded this podcast just a few days before CMS released its proposed staffing mandate. So Leslie did not get a chance to share her thoughts on this topic. And now my conversation with Leslie Campbell. Welcome to the podcast, Leslie. Hey, thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to our conversation. Great. Um, Leslie, let's start with your reflections um, over the summer. Can you reflect on Touchstone's summer and describe one win that the company or you or your team achieved in the last three months or so? Yeah, of course. Um, so when you say the word summer and you're talking to um, someone whose company is based in Texas, pretty much all you think about is triple digits and, and the air conditioning units making it through the summer uh, with triple record number triple digit days. Um, so that's been a win. But uh, in all seriousness, I think when we look at our biggest win across the summer, it was the solidification of the Medicaid rate add-on in Texas. Uh, we had a, or the ongoing Medicaid rate add-on that we had the benefit of through the uh, public health emergency. And as you're aware, Medicaid rates in Texas have, have lagged for many years. It's been a decade or so since we've had um, a material increase to our Medicaid rate. So the dissolution of the skill in place waivers and other help that we got through uh, the public health emergency, along with ongoing expenses associated with um, prevention of, of COVID within our communities. It was just a mandate for survival uh, to get that built into our ongoing Medicaid rate in Texas. And so a huge win when the sector in Texas came together and just really had a uh, grassroots full court press effort in influencing government um, policy in the state of Texas. And we're just so very grateful that we were heard and, and so very grateful for this permanency with the add-on. Mm -hmm. That's great to hear. Um, and, you know, just turning a little bit to challenges, um, can you describe one big challenge that the organization uh, faced over the summer? 
Yeah, you know, anytime in my experience in the summer, we begin to have um, a little more magnification of our staffing challenges in normal times during the summer months as um, kids are out of school and uh, child care is sometimes an issue and um, PTO or vacation um, taking that is um, becomes at the top of team members list. And so we saw a definite increase in our um, staffing challenges. They, they were magnified throughout the summer months. And that on top of the extreme challenges that we were facing ordinarily um, really, really um, caused some pressure on our business throughout the summer. Mm. And um, looking ahead to fall, um, what are your top priorities and goals as COO? Yeah, so I hear, you know, a lot about in our sector, I hear a lot about ongoing recovery. I hear um, in, from an occupancy perspective, from a revenue perspective, I look at it just a little bit differently. And I have defined for my team two primary objectives, the first being um, continued stabilization of the workforce. And the second one being we must become experts at care management. And in care management in this context starts with contract negotiations, um, referral processing, the, getting that initial authorization, admission, contract management, um, in discharge and post-discharge care. And for me, those two things until we stabilize the workforce and become experts at care management throughout the spectrum of, of stay of that resident or patient, we can't hope for recovery until those two things are solid. So we built quite a few strategies around those two major initiatives, realizing that a lot of other things begin to fall in place when those two things come to fruition. Mm -hmm. And Leslie, at our clinical conference last spring, um, you said that PDPM led to a quote, resurrection of nursing um, and caused Touchstone uh, to take a look at building nurse competencies in specialty areas. Can you expand that on, on that a little bit? Um, and what are some ways you're building out specialty care for higher acuity patients? Yeah, boy, this, this started um, in our company at the very basic level. And that was looking at the profile of the, the team members in uh, the clinical team members in our communities. And we had very few RNs. And in Texas, RN staffing is a particular challenge. But we really endeavored to get our arms around a strategy to increase the number of RNs within our communities. And so we just laid down some basic non-negotiables to start with. And that is that the DNS we would no longer be one of two or three RNs within many of our communities. We needed to surround that DNS with RN infrastructure, thereby stabilizing, doing a better job of stabilizing the DNS position. So that meant, um, you know, establishing non-negotiables of, of um, 
the nurse managers being RNs, the MDS coordinators being RNs, our ADNSs um, being RNs. And we did this through attrition. We also did it by supporting LVNs with enrollment in RN school and then helping them pay for that education to become RNs. And we've seen a significant shift just from those non-negotiables in the profile of our team. We believe that was an initial important first step. Additionally, we installed directors of clinical education, RN directors of clinical education in every one of our communities. We made this investment realizing we needed an expert in every single community to help build out competencies to help us address this greater level of acuity that we were seeing within our communities. Then we built um, program, or I should say competencies and approaches in specialty complex units within certain communities based on market needs. So, for instance, we installed a ventilator um, unit, a vent-dependent unit in our one of our um, communities in the Valley. We have a few in-house dialysis units. Um, we have um, installed a few dedicated transitional care units that um, have that provide care to uh, medically complex um, patients. We instituted a nursing focus respiratory prevention program that requires advanced clinical skills to care for patients with respiratory complications and disease processes, um, as well as to identify those at risk. We invested in our wound care um, program, um, implemented a wound care module, and invested in our wound care nurses um, in, by offering them assistance um, to become wound care certified. So first, um, insisting upon that wound care certification, that wound care competency, and then helping support in obtaining that wound care competency so that we could um, position ourselves to um, achieve better outcomes um, for those more challenging and complex patients. And then lastly, I'll just say that our chief nurse, Lana Blagg, is a nurse's nurse. And I mean, she has so many initials after her name, I can't even keep, keep track of them um, just because of her commitment to lifelong learning. But at her very core is we need to make Touchstone easier for nurses. And with that mantra, and, and the reason for that is, first of all, make us an attractive place to work for nurses. Let's not compound it by unnecessary paperwork or clerical types of things. Let's allow nurses to practice at the top of their licenses. Let's surround them with infrastructure that supports that philosophy. And then let's streamline workflow so that they have more time at the bedside of their patients and residents. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that philosophy, that mantra that our chief nurse has established for us along those lines has helped us really accelerate this um it, it, this it, you know this uh, achieving of excellence amongst our clinical infrastructure has helped us accelerate in building excellent clinical competencies achieving outstanding outcomes for our patients and residents and regulatory outcomes as well quite frankly mm -hmm. 
Um, just uh, segueing into staffing, um, this week, as you know, the CMS study related to a federal staffing mandate was mistakenly released. Um, what are your reactions to this report and the situation around the mandate? Well, you know, I, I, anytime, anytime there's a, a leak or something that's a mistake, I, I feel, um, you know, I'm sorry that those things happen. But at the same time, goodness, isn't it gratifying? It's what we as a sector have been saying for all of these months, that a one-size-fits-all just doesn't work. And through the leadership of Mark Parkinson and all of our wonderful AHCA um advocates you know we've been saying this that a one size doesn't fits all it's not a flip the switch it can't happen overnight and we all would raise our hands gladly and say um yes we want more more staff we want more team members but they're just not there so let's develop an approach to build um, build those resources and work our way into this. So gratifying. Um, I am hopeful that it gives us some breathing room and in better leverage to approach this in a more reasonable, practical manner that that um, also accounts for ensuring we have funds to pay for such a proposal. Mm -hmm. And then um just from your perspective, uh, for Touchstone, have staffing pressures eased at all over the course of 2023? You know, I think it, it again, it's all about perspective, right? If um, if I looked at 2023 in isolation, I would say, oh my goodness, never in my 30 years have I experienced staffing like this. But when I look at 2023 in the context of 2022 and 2021, you know, as the pandemic um, began to surge and, and that sort of thing, I would say somewhat, um, yes, somewhat, um, they've eased a bit. In, in it, it still though is our number one priority. And I will say that while, Staffing pressures have not materially changed. Um, our approach to those staffing pressures has. Mm -hmm. So are there any workforce-related initiatives that Touchstone has undertaken to improve recruitment and retention? If so, can you describe them? Sure. Yeah, this is, this is actually a source of pride. Um, for me, um, for because our team has come together in best-in-class fashion, and again, we do not view this as an HR matter. We do not um, view it as a talent and acquisition talent acquisition matter. We view it as a as an organizational priority, and therefore, at every level of of the organization, all hands are in in the huddle and saying, how can we collectively um, impact this in a material way? How can we be the solution out there? And to that end, we have, um, we've approached our HR function with renewed vigor. And so while we don't view this as an HR problem or an HR um, matter in isolation to address, we do 
um, believe that having strong HR business partners beside our operational leaders is is um, paramount to tackling this challenge. And so we've been we've looked at our infrastructure as a whole, and we've invested in regional HR business partners. We've ensured that we have elevated and installed HR business partners in every single community. Um, we've elevated our quote unquote corporate HR function and and really looked at other more out of the box approaches. We, you know, you hear a lot of um, talk about culture and I believe culture is, is really important in attracting best in class team members and stabilizing the workforce. And, you know, there was a time when I was looking at our culture and saying, well, who wouldn't want to come and work for us? And, then, you know, as we do that root cause analysis, we realize that while the culture is alive and well at the CSO, the central support office and the region levels, there was a little bit of a miss between those levels and those touching our residents and, and patients. So we really set on a course to make sure we had consistency of cultural elements throughout the entire organization. And, and we shifted a little bit to ensure that our um, cultural pillars of purpose, mission, and vision, and, and beatitudes, values, all could resonate with um, everyone in our organization, and they could understand how their particular roles um, directly contributed to that. And, and we've made it as simple as, first of all, everyone in the organization needs to um, be able to say it. So, in other words, memorize it. So it had knowledge, say it, say it, say it, say it, a part of our daily vernacular, then, you know, head knowledge eventually becomes heart knowledge. And then heart knowledge, um, when that connects, then, then it's manifested through our hands. And it's been really powerful to see that take place. And we, we've seen us holding on to team members as a result. Another big thing is we move from the traditional um, solo relationship with um, indeed, to utilizing a job aggregator to post all of our positions. And instead of us putting our pos open positions out there and hoping people would come to us, this job aggregator uses artificial intelligence to put our postings where the applicants are where those who are looking for jobs in certain communities using this AI, it knows where they are via algorithmic fashion. And so we found a lot of efficiencies with our candidate, um, our candidates. And so while our volume has decreased the quality of our applicants and candidates and our conversion ratio has increased, therefore our open positions have, have gone down. So that's been really exciting. We we also really set on a course to really understand what's happening in that first 90 days. Um, our organization, much like I think most organizations in the industry, the biggest chunk of our team members, were we were losing them in that first 90 days. So we really wanted to sink that hook in a real positive way in that first 90 days. So we issue five touch point surveys in that first 90 days via text message. So we want to go to the team members in a way that they are communicating now 
the results of those surveys go to the hiring, uh, the administrators, the regional vice president, and to me and our chief um, human resources officer, and we're able to intervene directly. So if someone on the seven-day survey says that they didn't get a good orientation or they weren't feeling welcome, we're able to zoom in right then and intervene and correct. And then I'm tracking from an organizational perspective and, and seeing how we can put you know, um, systems in place that will apply globally to solve for some of those issues. And we, again, we're seeing big results from that, um, real positive results from that. And then last, I mean, we're doing a bunch, but lastly, I, we moved to a centralized orientation model in one of our biggest markets um, where we had the um, biggest agency utilization and the, and the biggest turnover. And we bring every new team member in this market, in the San Antonio market, to our centralized office for centralized orientation one day, the first day, um, every week. So we'll provide transportation. We bring them in. We make a really big deal out of it. We know their story before they get here. Um, the chief human resources officer and I actually launched the orientation every Tuesday morning. We're, we're talking about the touchstone experience. We launched that orientation and, and that's made a big difference as well. Um, our retention rate within that first 90 days in this market has skyrocketed as a result of some of these things. Mm, very interesting. Um, when you spoke with us earlier this year, I believe you said um, DONs and administrators who worked through the pandemic now are planning for retirement in the next few years. Is that correct? And how is Touch Shown trying to prepare for these retirements? Yes, and we're, we're seeing that. We're continuing to see that. So, you know, team members who... Um, you know, have served this industry for so many years and and just our, our hallmarks in the industry. Um, we're seeing that that, um, you know, their their glide path towards retirement has accelerated. Um, and we talked to them and yeah, the pandemic accelerated that glide path. Living through those three years definitely accelerated the glide path. You know, and I have a real passion for investing for the future. I I, I want to look out across the industry and 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 see who who can I personally and professionally invest in who will sit in my chair one day. Mm -hmm. And so we've instilled that mindset across all of our senior leaders, all of our leaders with such. Um, tenure to where they all have a laser-like focus on investing in future leaders, taking people under their wings. We've also, um, you know, I use a tool that I call leadership mapping, where every leader, every key leader in the organization um, is mapped, and it's mapped according to their performance and their potential. And we just use a simple color coding, but I can look out across the organization and know how many blues, quote unquote, blues we have. And the blues are the high, high flyers. They're high performers and they have high potential. And so we're identifying those blues and um, the ones who are 
solid, but yet on a two-year glide path to retirement, we're identifying another blue who can be their successor. And that, um, that tenured leader is taking that successor under their wing. We also are investing in those um, in those blues, um, giving them executive coaching opportunities, leadership academy opportunities, leadership development opportunities um, tailored to their ultimate um, professional aspiration. So we've done a lot in, in that regard. We're actually naming people who would be suited to be the next VPO in certain regions, the next administrator. We've, we've invested in a robust administrator and training program to where we have two under our wings that are constantly rotating through, through the organization and getting them to commit to Touchstone. Mm -hmm. Um, now, turning our attention uh, away from workforce initiatives, um, wanted to talk to you a little bit about Medicare Advantage. We've heard a lot of concern about the rise of Medicare Advantage as a pair for nursing homes, including operational pain from increased paperwork, audits, appeals, etc. Is Touchstone feeling this pain? And if so, how is the organization responding? Yeah, we are, um, we, for sure. And, and so this goes back to my, um, you know, one of my core focuses for Q4 and then 2024 is that we must become experts at care management. And this shift to Medicare Advantage is one of the drivers of, of this mandate for our organization. When I look back to 2020, the, in April of 2020, when I first joined the company, we had um, about 30% of our, I would just under 30% of our skilled days were managed care or Medicare Advantage, Medicare replacement plans. Last month, 50% of our skilled days were Medicare Advantage or, or managed care replacement plans or, or managed care. And so whenever you look at that shift in just such a short period of time and the disparity ratio, the rate disparity um, that's associated with the shift um, such as that, it's not going to change. I think we're going to see that continue to become a larger part of our overall business. And that model associated with Medicare Advantage plans is, is just a fact of the future, and we must become experts at it. So at Touchstone, we've, we've really narrowed this down um, to three things, and that's people, get it best in class, um, team of resources, and again, it's an organizational approach to this. So best-in-class revenue cycle leader, best-in-class sales leader, best-in-class managed care um, negotiator, uh, contract negotiator, best-in-class um, case management team, etc. The second thing is processes. So having very clear, defined processes that um, in checklist fashion, consistent with the Tua Gwande's um, checklist manifesto. In checklist fashion, very clear, defined processes that are translatable from department to department. We have transparency around 
um, each functional areas checklist and then where the handoff occurs to mitigate errors with handoffs. And then lastly, technology. If we don't leverage technology to streamline the workflow that's associated with this and to help us deliver care according to the, the um, contract and according to the revenue associated with the contract, then, then being successful in the future will be very, very difficult. So that's a little bit about what we've done. We've we've partnered with um, a, a technology platform that, you know, reads our contracts and in flags for exclusions, flags for the need to level um, when there's an opportunity to increase a level or request a level or care needs demand another level. Um, everything that we can do to streamline that workflow. Mm -hmm. And um, how have surveys been going for Touchstone? We've been reporting on concerns over survey processes as many surveyors are recent hires. Yeah, you know, we've definitely, I think, you know, to be fair, I think um, the pandemic took its toll on the surveyors as well. And I think we've seen a, a pretty significant exodus of surveyors. There are certain states that, um, you know, I have friends, former colleagues who were surveyors and, you know, that's the anecdotal feedback that I hear from them. So I I think that's part of the, the phenomenon associated with the um, the large volume of new surveyors. And while at Touchstone continue to perform better than state and national averages on surveys, um, we have definitely seen um, increased scrutiny and deficiencies being written in 2023. We've seen increased um, uh, trainees. We may have a, you know, a hundred bed building and 10 surveyors. Um, come in for the annual survey and three of them or four of them are trainees. And um, we've seen instances where in certain pockets of Texas, um, you know, they're sending in an independent team to oversee the local um, surveyors to, you know, ensure that the survey process is, is being, there's, in, in other words, there's increased pressure to cite. There's increased pressure to cite deficiencies. Another thing that we've seen are, are, is the IDR process. And we'll, we'll go and dispute a deficiency according to the process and be successful with that. The independent reviewer will say, yes, we, we agree and overturn the deficiency, but then the state agency will unilaterally disregard the independent reviewer's decision and uphold a deficiency. And, and so, you know, many times you scratch your head and say, well, what's what's the point of an IDR? Um, I do have to, you know, just this week, Kevin Warren from the um, Texas Healthcare Association issued a letter, a memo to HHSC, um, just querying them along those lines. You know, we, we want answers, we need answers and, um, you know, respond to this. And so hopefully we're, we will um, get some healthy dialogue and, and um, figure this out going forward. At our clinical conference last spring, you spoke about how Touchstone added new service lines in the midst of COVID. What were those services and what was the company's strategy in adding them? 
Well, we, we added in the midst of COVID, um, I think I said at the conference, we didn't sit still. Um, we developed a best in class response to COVID and um, then we didn't sit still, um, taking advantage of the opportunity to create and redeploy resources and knowing that our industry was at a very significant um, project critical trajectory point. And so we endeavored to, um, consistent with the marching orders I got from our principals, Carl um, Felbaum and, and um, Stan Studer and, and Brian Selke, when I first came on board, we wanna innovate and we wanna create something that'll be around a lot longer than we are, a lot longer than, than um, we all are. And we want to be the post-acute care solution in the markets um, where we have a presence. And so using those kind of um, guiding principles, we launched a home health company, we launched a hospice company, and we um, laid the foundation for a launch of an ice snip. And um, again, we just did that with the goal of um, being the post-acute care solution. We wanted to um, we wanted to build something that was unique and and different and solve for you know one of the things that I asked our team to do is when when we were um, this was all in process is think about think about our current home health partners and we have some good ones and um, think about our current hospice. Um, partners. And again, we have some good ones, but think about everything about those partners that we think we could do better or that frustrate us or that make us um, cringe. And then let's build something that solves for all of those things. So we really had the opportunity with a, a blank slate to create something that we believe is very special and unique and serves a need to patients and residents in the markets. Yeah, I recall uh, the uh, the don't not the exact quote, but the analogy that you made um, uh, for this diversification to being in mid-flight, right, and having to change direction all of a sudden. Right. Uh, so I, I recall that from our clinical conference, but. Um, are there any metrics um, that you can share related to how Touchstone has been able to bring down systemic healthcare costs, reduce hospitalizations, et cetera? Yeah, um, you know, first of all, we, we've really worked hard to broaden the horizons of thinking of our leadership throughout the company. And this this includes leaders in the community. You know, so often we get so focused on what's been within our four walls that we lose sight of the broader picture. And I believe when we as nursing facility operators now lose sight of that broader picture, we lose. So we have um, really instilled a sense of broad stewardship within amongst our leaders, that sense of corporate responsibility. What are we doing to benefit society, to benefit health, the, the um, yeah, society by doing our part to take cost out of the system, both within our four walls and then outside of our four walls. And along those um, 
lines, you know, rehospitalization. Um, obviously, we have significant efforts under underway with that, and you know, um, we saw that come down pretty significantly throughout the pandemic. Now that acute care providers are more um, have beds open um, for things other than COVID, you know, we've seen it. Uh, increase up a little bit, but you know we've we've essentially um, in throughout the course of, of of the last couple of years have brought our rehospitalization rates down um, well below the national average, down to eighteen um, percent. And um, you know, again, our our acute care um, markets are moving a little more swiftly than our longer term rural markets. Uh, we've also seen our average length of stay. Um, for our um, managed care population um, uh, come down and all while achieving um, great outcomes. We um, have a, a, a full court press on antipsychotics because um, antipsychotic utilization, um, because number one, um, there are many cases where they're just not good for our residents and patients. Number two, they contribute to so many other clinical um, phenomenons that it's um, it, it's an important um, priority for us. And number three, there's a cost associated with all of those. We brought those down to 6%. Um, so again, best in class um, results there. Then two other really important areas that we launched earlier um, at the beginning of this year. One is um, de-prescribing. And we've all seen the cost associated with medications. And then um, the number of meds being delivered and deprescribing helps us on a whole host of fronts as far as taking cost out of the system, right? And, and so we've really, um, with our chief medical officer, Dr. James Avery and our chief nurse, Lana, um, really have um, made that a focus and engaged our medical directors accordingly and our, our pharmacy partners partners and are getting some um, movement with that. And then lastly, um, an initiative that I'm very passionate about, as is um, Dr. Avery and, and Lana, is our sliding scale um, insulin initiative and, and really having um, a real focused um, review of that um, because it causes so much risk. And the benchmark's not zero, right? Um, there's an appropriate um, use for it, but in general, so much risk to those patients and residents. There's a nursing cost, there's a, a drug cost, but cost in this case is secondary to quality um, for the residents and patients. So, you know, I think the biggest driver here, Zahida, is just establishing that sense of corporate citizenship, um, corporate stewardship um, or societal stewardship um, mindset across our leaders in the company. Hmm. And uh, you touched uh, upon uh, a little bit on the iSNPs, Touchstones iSNPs. And I wondered if you might like to describe Touchstones iSNP journey a little bit more. Yeah, you, you know, this has been a journey. Um, that was one of the things that, um, as I was um, talking with Touchstone before coming on board, that was one of the things that um, that I would I was charged with. And then coming on board in um, April of 2020, obviously that was tabled for that first year. But in 2021, we really began to evaluate options. 
And that progressed in 2022 to where we um, began to lay some um, foundational work for, um, you know, the, the care model that would be required. Um, began to take a look at our resident population who might be eligible, and then looked at, at others who were already um, engaged in the ISNIP model. And then last year, we really um, accelerated this, and, and we vetted partners, evaluated models, and finally selected the path that um, uh, in 2023, and we selected the path um, earlier this year in, in February that we would be taking. And so we flushed out our model, um, built out our partners, and um, will launch excitedly in January of 2024. And, um, you know, I'm not going to talk too much more about it because there's going to be this really great session at AHCA and putting a plug in there. And, and um, I'll, I'll talk more about it at that point in time. But we have partnered with Longevity and um, it's structured as an IPA, which is a little bit of a unique model. And again, I'll, I'll be talking much more about that at AHCA, but we're really excited about what this will bring for our residents within our communities and our company as a whole. Mm -hmm. uh, and this podcast is called Rethink. Um, what's something that you think leaders in the nursing home SNF sector need to rethink. Um, it could be anything, a common operational practice, a common mindset, a business strategy, how advocacy is being done, anything at all. Yeah, it, it, so here's the thing. I, I've been doing this a really long time. And um, which means, you know, I have I have age, I have wisdom and age on, uh, um, behind me. So, um, I tell my team frequently, I don't care how long I've been doing this. I do not want to be that old dog who can't, who you can't teach new tricks to. I don't want to be an old dog who can't learn new tricks. And to that end, um, we all have to think differently. The environment mandates that we think differently. And I think it comes down again to two things, the workforce environment if we don't think differently about how we attract and retain team members, we won't have team members. And so um, it, it's and it, cha it challenges us. It challenges me on on many fronts. But I think you know, just at every level of the organization, culture and purpose is important and every member of the organization has to be linked with how their role impacts our overall purpose, our overall mission. Um, and then money matters. It's not the number one thing, but money, flexibility matter like, like it never has before. And, and money may not be the form in the form of base compensation. And so we've got to think differently about compensation packages. And then I always, I've always said this, and I believe it now um, more than ever before, the answers to our greatest challenges in this sector are not around a boardroom table. The answers to our greatest challenges are closest to the bedside of our patients and residents. 
Therefore, every voice on our team matters. Every voice on my team matters. And we've got to, we've got to get our heads and hearts around that and tap into those closest to the care to help us solve our challenges. And then lastly, we've got to shift our paradigm. Yes, care within our four walls is important and outcomes within our four walls is important, but we have to build systems, processes, and approaches that allow for visibility and involvement with care outcomes outside of our four walls. That really is the future of our sector. And, um, and so we've got to rethink along those lines. Leslie, thank you for your time and insights. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, likewise, Sahita, and really appreciate what you and the team at Skilled Nursing News does for our industry and your advocacy and insight. Just great partners. That does it for this episode of Rethink. Once again, I'd like to remind listeners about the upcoming Continuum Conference taking place December 7th in Washington, D.C. Visit skillednursingnews.com forward slash events to learn more and get tickets. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.